Before we move on with this episode of the Scene in the Unseen, do check out another awesome podcast from IVM Podcast, Cyrus Says, hosted by my old buddy Cyrus Brocha. When we look back at history, it often seems to proceed in a straight linear progression. First A happens and B follows A, then C and D and E and F and so on, one event after another, almost as if everything is inevitable, but that's a hindsight bias in action. Everything does seem inevitable after it has already happened. When I look back at Indian history though, I am puzzled by one man, Mohandas Gandhi. All of Indian history in hindsight makes sense to me and follows a coherent progression but Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi is like a black swan event there's no leader like him before or after and if he didn't exist history would have been very different for example he comes from a very different background from all our other freedom fighters and his intellectual influences are different he doesn't share first principles with any of our other leaders his trajectory is completely different to theirs he has bizarre views on modern medicine on technology on economics and he could justifiably be called at least at certain times in his life racist misogynist autocratic and yet he had a greater impact on modern india than arguably any other human being before he returned to india from south africa at the age of 45 the indian freedom struggle was a movement of the elites mohandas gandhi at about the time he became mahatma gandhi made it a mass movement in which most of the 300 million people of india could feel they were stakeholders he grounded that movement in principles of non-violence and worked tirelessly at bringing different religions and castes together he led by example living a spartan life eventually sacrificing his life for the nation and his impact survive much longer than the man or this nation his ideals of non-violence and passive resistance inspired generations across the world long after his time from nelson mandela to martin luther king and yet the more i read about gandhi it seems to me that he didn't plan much of what happened things happened to him as much as he made them happen and much of what today seems like a feature could also have turned out to be a bug reading about gandhi i couldn't place my finger on quite the man he was and this is not surprising because he lived 78 years during which he was many people at a time his collected writings extend to over 100 volumes and he changed his mind often as he grew as a person and a leader no one narrative explains him and like india gandhi contained multitudes welcome to the seen and the unseen our weekly podcast on economics, politics and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the scene in the unseen. My guest today is the historian Ramachandra Guha, whose magisterial book Gandhi: The Years That Changed the World is on the stands. Because of my fascination with Gandhi, I wanted to get Ram on the show for a while, not just to talk about his latest book, but about Gandhi in general. While his latest book covers Gandhi's years after he came back to India from South Africa, his previous book, Gandhi Before India, covers the years from his birth to his return to India at age 45. I wanted to chat about both periods of Gandhi's life, and Ram was kind enough to sit with me in two sessions on two separate days in Bangalore in what turned out to be a two-part episode, of which this is the first part. This episode covers Mohandas Gandhi from birth to age 45. In that time, Gandhi grows up in Porbandar and Rajkot, goes to London to study law, comes back to India, fails to establish a practice, follows an opportunity to go to South Africa, happens to become a leader of the Indian elite sir, 
comes back to India, fails to establish his practice again, goes back to South Africa again, where he now becomes a leader not just of the well-to-do traders in his social circle, but of the indentured laborers there as well, turning an elite movement into a mass movement, not for the last time. He organizes his first Satyagrahas there and turns his instincts about non-violence into a coherent philosophy of politics. And then he comes back to India. It's a fascinating period of his life. But before I take you to my first session with Ram, a quick commercial break. Like me, are you someone who loves fine art but can't really afford to have paintings by the artists you like hanging on your walls? Well, worry no more. Head on over to IndianColors.com. Indian Colors is a company that licenses images of the finest modern art from some of the best artists in India and adapts them into objects of everyday use. These include wearable art like stoles and shrugs, home decor like cushion covers and table runners, and accessories like tote bags. This allows art lovers to actually get fine art into their homes at an accessible price, and artists get royalties on sales, just like authors do. What's more, Indian Colors now has an exciting range of new products, including fridge magnets with some stunning motifs and salad bowls and platters made of mango wood. Their artists include luminaries like Babu Xavier, Vazvo Xvazvo, Brinda Miller, Dilip Sharma, Shruti Nelson and Pradeep Mishra. They accept bulk orders for corporate and festival gifting, but even if you want to buy just for yourself or a friend, head on over to IndianColors.com. That's colors with an O-U. And if you want a 20% discount, apply the code IVM20. That's IVM for IVM Podcast. IVM20 for a 20% discount at IndianColors.com. Ram, welcome to the scene in the unseen. Thank you. Ram, one thing that I've always wondered about is that, you know, when we look back at history, uh, lay people like me uh, who are not historians, we do that with the benefit of hindsight. It seems as if, uh, you know, we already know everything that has happened and events seem uh, sort of inevitable. But as a historian, when you delve into history and you're looking at contemporary events around a particular period of time and so on, how do you manage to sort of thrust that hindsight aside and look at it almost with new eyes and not let the knowledge of what actually happened color your perception? So I think there are two or three rather elementary maxims one tries to follow when reconstructing the past, especially when reconstructing the story of a person as well-known, as talked about, as famous, as controversial as Gandhi. The first maxim comes from a great Cambridge historian from called F.W. Maitland, who said, that which is now in the past was once in the future. Now, this applies to societies, but it also applies to individuals, that uh, when Gandhi was growing up in Porbandar and Rajkot, his law career was in the future. To now it's in the past. Us now it's in the past. So you must not anticipate what happens. You must let it try and portray yourself in the shoes of that person at that point of time. Even a person whose future is so well known and so closely mapped out. The other maxim is that, which is a little more difficult to follow in the case of Gandhi, is that when you're looking at an event at a particular point of time, 1905 or 1910 or 1920. Try and base your account as much as possible on the contemporary documents and sources rather than basing it on later retrospective accounts. So someone in 1940 says, this is what happened in 1910. When you have an alternative source which actually describes what happened written on the same day in 1910, you'd rather trust that. Now, why this is particularly challenging and important the case of Gandhi is that Gandhi has left his autobiography 
and I've always believed that an autobiography is a preemptive strike against a future biographer. It's like, <laughs> this is my story. And, uh, you know, I've told it before anyone else can. And if you tell it as compellingly as Gandhi, you know, right, then it's a further challenge for the biographer. But you must be very cautious in interpreting accounts written much later of an event that took place, particularly if those uh, accounts are emanating from the subject himself. And, you know, this problem of leaving aside hindsight, especially as a reader, strikes me as especially acute when we talk about the fight for India's independence, because this is something which we uh, ascribe like a hundred years span to, if you say it started in the mid 19th century. And yet at that time, there wasn't really any coherent idea of India per se. And a lot of the people we look at as, say, early freedom fighters like the Naurojis and all the moderates, uh, you know, Ranade onwards, Gokhale onwards, all the way to the early 20th century, largely saw themselves as subjects of the British Empire, just trying to, as British liberals really, just trying to sort of get a better status for the Indians within the empire. Can you kind of lay out a landscape of what politics was like in India around the time Gandhi was born? Like he was born in 1869. So that. So I'd say uh, the Indian National Congress starts in 1885, when Gandhi is 16 and uh, he's a school student. Uh, he's not yet gone to London. And at the moment, it is, as you say, a forum really account asking for greater rights. So for Indians to be made professors, judges, editors, educated Indians. Uh, little later on, uh, when Gandhi moves to South Africa, there's the rise of a more militant tendency through the bomb-throwing anarchists and revolutionaries of Bengal and Maharashtra, and later the Punjab. Now, they are influenced actually by ideas of nationalism in that 19th century Europe sees a lot of radical, violent political activity on behalf of, for example, subjects of the Tsar's empire or the Austro-Hungarian empire or even closer home, the Irish who are subjected like Indians to British colonial rule. So there is some... So you have the liberals who are the people you mentioned, Ranade, Naroji, Gokhale, wanting greater rights within the British Empire. But there is also a small stream of revolutionary radicals who want to really terrorize the British out of India through armed struggle. And Gandhi does not know, of, later on he comes to know of both of them. I mean, he's earlier, of course, he goes to South Africa and then on his first visit back in 1896, he meets Gokhale. Uh, and now in, in England, he meets Nauroji. So he's, his main influence or his main uh, uh, sort of mentors come from the liberal team. And it's only much later that he gets to know about uh, the revolutionary uh, nationalists, whom, of course, he later uh, disagrees with. And, and before we sort of go on to Gandhi per se and his own life, just one kind of broader question. What do you think of the great man theory of uh, history? Like, was everything that happened inevitable anyway because of the grand currents of history? Not at all, not Gandhi? at all, not at all. I think uh, great men and great women do play a role in shaping history. And it's really a question of the balance that you are able to, uh, you know, forge in your account between the person and his times, between what he or she does and uh, what the impact could be. Uh, but clearly, I'm not a, a Marxist who believes, I mean, Marxists believe it's only classes and technologies and impersonal social forces that determine history. I think great human beings, both for good and for bad. I mean, if there'd been no Hitler, there may have been no Nazism, for example, right? Now, uh, if there'd been no Stalin, Russian communism may not have taken such a brutal and barbaric shape. If there'd been no Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, India may not have 
adopted a democratic template uh, to the same extent, right? So there's no question that influential people who assume power do shape history in certain ways, do shape the direction of the, that their societies take in certain ways. Uh, and those outcomes would not have happened if those individuals had not been born or not been in positions of power. You know, we don't know, for example, to take something much closer at hand, if Narsimha Rao had not become prime minister in 1991, if Sharad Pawar had become prime minister, for example, would we have had liberalization? We can't say. Right. In Gandhi's case, you know, while rereading uh, your, uh, Gandhi before India, the role of contingency also struck me. That at various times, it seemed that this was not a man who was propelled towards greatness by anything other than the winds of chance. That at various points in his life, it just so happened that he... You know, because of sheer luck, he kind of took the next step that he did. For example, had his father not died, he might not have gone to London, as you point out. No one who was, you know, born in his sort of circumstances or his caste had really left their town or village. And here he was going to London to study law, which his father would never have allowed. And even further down the road, you know, as we... um, go through his early life, right? When he came back from London, he wasn't doing well in Bombay. He wasn't doing well in Rajkot. So when he got an opportunity, he went to South Africa, which is the only... And all of these, it's almost like these random events sort of put him uh, in this direction. So as a historian, when you look at that, and I mean, one thing like you mentioned is you put hindsight aside, but does it uh, also strike you how much contingency plays a part? Absolutely. Chance and contingency plays a very important role in history. Uh... Uh, in the lives of individuals, uh, uh, in Gandhi's case, I mean, just a simple counterfactual. If he had succeeded as a lawyer in uh, Bombay, uh, where he tried for two years and failed, and he describes it quite movingly in his autobiography, how he would sleep in the chambers and so on, he would not have gone to South Africa because South Africa rescued him from professional oblivion. But also his own own later understanding of India would have been seriously impoverished. If Gandhi had succeeded at the bar in Bombay and carried on through the 1890s and 1900s, almost all his clients would have been Gujarati speakers, middle class, a large proportion would have been Baniyas. It is by going to South Africa that he encounters the linguistic and religious and class diversity of India. And what also kind of happened is that because uh, his caste, uh, his fellow Banias did not want him to go overseas because there was such a taint on it, that they kind of ostracized him for a while, which pushed him in dual directions. One, to look for friends outside his narrow circle as he might otherwise have done. And B, that probably played a part in his failure in Bombay and Rajkot, which is why South Africa. I think the first is absolutely true. That, you know, uh, though, though it appears uh, from what little we can understand, and here one must rely, at least in, unfortunately in part on Gandhi's autobiography, because that's the most vivid recollection of these days that from early on he was making friends with Muslims I mean Sheikh Mehtab is the most famous right. stroke notorious one which is rare for someone in his background he goes to London uh, and he shares a home with Josiah Oldfield who's an Englishman which is an incredibly radical act for its time so part of it was push that the Mood Baniyas pushed him out he looked elsewhere part of it was an inner seeking an inner desire to befriend people outside your linguistic or religious universe now however when it comes to his failure in the Bombay bar my sense Amit having sat in various Indian courts not in the Bombay High Court but I've sat quite a lot in the Supreme Court uh, just observing proceedings is that he failed because he was an absolutely lousy speaker and orator right I mean, he probably was meticulous, prepared his briefs, knew the law. He was incredibly hardworking. But anyone who knows, goes to a, um Indian court knows that eloquence, wordplay 
and uh, even decibel levels play a role in impressing clients and judges. I mean, it's right, very clear. And whatever clips we have of Gandhi tell you he was a lousy speaker, even the accounts of South Africa, where uh, he succeeded partly because he was in a monopoly of one. He was the only Indian lawyer who could represent expatriate Indians in the colonial courts, right? So he had that monopoly. But their accounts are quoted in my book of, you know, his stutter, his stammer, what an indifferent speaker he was. In fact, when he came to Bombay, you mentioned how he was hesitant to read out his own his speech. So That's right. Else had to That's right. For him. In 1896, yeah, yeah. Right. So going back to kind of... London, I mean, that's the first big journey that he takes where despite the wishes of his community, he goes to London, his brothers raise money for him and so on. And he's reached London. And you describe London in 1888 as an imperial city, an industrial city, and probably most importantly, an international city. It's a truly cosmopolitan city. And yet Gandhi's influences within the city are kind of limited in the sense that he's not interested in the liberal versus story politics. He's not interested in going to the theater or in sports or whatever. He just sort of, he finds these sort of niches where he's comfortable, like the vegetarian society, and he discovers Henry Salt and all of that. And uh, and he immerses himself in those, which I, I found very interesting that, you know, young man goes to a city like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is curious. I mean, it, he... As, uh, he and uh, I don't quote it in my book, in Gandhi Before India, but uh, EMS Namudripat, in a book he wrote in the 1950s called The Mahatma and the Ism, makes great play with what Gandhi does and what he does not do in London. And, you know, he's sort of very superior that this was Karl Marx had just died. Engels was still living. The Fabian Society had been formed. Uh, George Bernard Shaw was, uh, you know, uh, promoting and writing radical plays. Uh, the feminists were active on the streets. And what does the Mahatma do? He joins a vegetarian society. You know, <laughs> it's, it's actually quite interesting. If you read EMS's account written in the 1950s, uh, which is a, he did a, the book, his book, Mahatma and Ism, is a collection of the eight reviews he wrote of the eight volumes of Tendulkar's biography, which he published in, uh, I think, New Age, which was the Communist Weekly. So he's like scornful, like, look at this guy, you know, all the progressive currents of this time and some cloud cuckoo vegetarian society, what he joins. Now, uh, of course, uh, uh, in the 21st century, you know, there's an ethical case of vegetarianism, which is perhaps as strong as that for socialism, right? But beyond that, I think the vegetarian society did two things for Gandhi. Uh, he stumbled upon them. He read one of Saul's pamphlets. He heard about, uh, you know, their meetings and he started going for them. The two things it did. One, of course, it gave him his first English friends, his the ability to, you know, relate to people of different backgrounds. And the second and most imp more important thing he did, which I think uh, had got insufficient attention, perhaps before Gandhi, before India, is that it gave him a platform. I mean, you and I are, you know, make a living through writing, right? Now, just imagine how lucky Gandhi was that his debut in print was a series of six articles. <laughs> you know, when I was, uh, this is uh, 1888, 89, I mean, even 20, 20, 21. When you and I were 20, 21, you know, getting a letter published in the Hindu letter to the editor was a, kind of the pinnacle of our achievement, even if we got, got it got that far. So I think it, his writing skills, his ability to reflect, argue, on matters of important moral and political uh, significance, right? Now, that is what the vegetarian society gave him and a circle of friends. So in retrospect, we must be grateful. I mean, so those articles, the six articles are the beginning of 90 volumes of his collected works. Uh, but it is interesting, though he, uh, he, he is clearly uh, not totally immune to politics. He does meet Dada by Nauroji briefly, uh, who is then 
about to become the first um, member, of a, a member, Indian member of parliament, Asian mem- member of parliament with an Asian background. He does go to the funeral of the great atheist Bradlaugh, who was an influence on Annie Besant and also an anti, one of the few significant anti-imperialist voices in the British parliament. But the vegetarian society is really his, his home. I mean, it, it gives him a certain... Uh, uh, yeah, and it's kind of amusing the way you describe it. Comfort. The, uh, the rest of the people at that time look at the vegetarian society much as people look at vegans today. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh, these sanctimonious people always preaching to us, right, uh, you know, right. with their uh, moral superiority or whatever, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. kind of funny that you'd have expected things to change more. And it also kind of struck me was that, uh, you know, one of his writings from that period was his guide to London, where, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, he... A little later, but uh, he, he wrote this guide to London about what people should do there and uh, where he said that one must visit the theatre every month to familiarize uh, oneself with the culture. And it struck me that he kind of therefore saw going to the theatre as having a functional aspect. Yeah. That you yeah. don't do these things for the pleasure of it, like going to the theatre, watching sports, any of that. And it's it's very functional and again, is it sort of contingency that London is so expensive and he doesn't have so much money that, that forces himself into an ascetic kind of lifestyle? That too. I think we don't know enough about how he clearly didn't have very much money. His father had died. He had taken a loan to go there. Uh, and he was very, he talks about what he ate, which was very little, you know, essentially one, one and a half meals a day. But I think having said that, I think there, Gandhi, there is, uh, unlike Nehru, and Tagore, who was just arguably the two, his two closest Indian friends, uh, Gandhi does not have an aesthetic side. Hmm. So later in life, he appreciates the art of Nandalal Bose because it contributes to a successful Congress session. You know, he appreciates the music of M.S. Subalakshmi because he's saying syncretic devotional songs. But he does not really have an aesthetic side. I think you mentioned that even in South Africa, when he starts living with the Polacks and uh, uh, Millie Polak wants to do up the... Uh, you know, have rugs. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And he, he says, what's the point of these lovely curtains? You know, go look at the sunshine. That's beautiful. Why do you want beauty in your house? You look at the sunshine. Uh, pronouncing know? that right, Polak? <laughs> yeah, Polak. Yeah, Polak is kind of idea. Yeah. 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 And, and so I was, I was also struck by this interesting uh, description of uh, Gandhi from that period where someone mentioned coming across him in the streets of London and even on a normal occasion when he wasn't actually going somewhere, he was described as having, quote, a high silk top hat, brushed burnished bright, a stiff and starched collar, a fine striped silk shirt and dark trousers with a coat to match and patent leather boots where, uh, you know, and, and it's almost poignant because you see a young man who is displaced from his home, yeah. trying hard to fit in, trying for validation. And is that quest for validation sort of a theme that keeps occurring through Gandhi's journey over the years? No, I think certainly in London. I mean, he is diffident. Uh, you know, he's uh, in the family is diffident. He's known as a timid child. He has elder brothers whom he has to defer to. His father dies. You know, he's not a particularly good speaker. He tries to adopt British ways, but doesn't do so very successfully. And maybe this dressing up, overdressing, in a sense, in a British sense, is a way, is a compensation for that. But in South Africa, the early years also is like that. But over the years, of course, he acquires a much greater degree of self-confidence and self-worth. Yeah, I mean, by the end of his first year, he's into vegetarianism. He's living a much simpler, more Spartan lifestyle. He's walking everywhere to save money and, you know, settles into that kind of groove. What I was also sort of uh, wondering about is, you know, Naipaul once described Gandhi as the least Indian of the Indian leaders. 
And just looking at his intellectual influences, it seems to me that they're very different from either the moderates or the extremists or anyone else in the Indian freedom struggle. In the sense that the people he then admired, like Gokhale in India and Auroji in London, were inspired by Mill and Bentham. And, you know, their intellectual journey was very British liberal. And Gandhi seems not even to have read these people. His first big influence, perhaps, was Henry Salt. Then in his early South African years, it was Tolstoy. And to Tolstoy, the moralist, not the novelist. Absolutely. And then later on, Henry David Thoreau and uh, Ruskin yeah. you know, unto this last and he, and he gets a concatenation of ideas from the, these guys which are almost sort of new agey which don't seem to be uh, you know philosophically very coherent and, and very different from all the other thinkers yeah yeah and he, in a sense it's his distillation of them that makes sense it appears a very motley crowd that influences him you know and for example if you take a book that written much later Hind Swaraj 1909 now Hind Swaraj is a book that I believe is overrated for multiple reasons it has some powerful and important passages but if you it is it is acclaimed indeed glorified by Gandhians as a testament of Swadeshi Swaraj self-rule civilizational pride you know uh, you know a critique of colonial knowledge and all that kind of stuff if you look at the reading list to Hind Swaraj I think there are two Indians and 23 Goras, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the Goras are interesting because there's not Min, there's not Morley. Uh, there is the people you mentioned, you know, Ruskin, and Tolstoy and so on. But there's also Edward Carpenter, who's a very important influence on him. Edward Carpenter, there are two or three books by Carpenter that are cited there. Now, Carpenter is a very, very interesting man. Carpenter was a guild socialist who opposed centralized factory production wanted to organize workers' cooperatives, was a Cambridge mathematics don who left Cambridge to live in Sheffield, outside Sheffield, and create a kind of rural community. He wrote a famous book with Gandhi Light called Civilization is Cause and Cure. So, you know, there was a problem with industrial civilization. And Gandhi was greatly influenced by him. Now, though this is a bit of an aside, and Gandhi would not have known that. But uh, there are two things about Carpenter. Uh, apart from all this, he was a great pioneering environmentalist. He founded the first anti-pollution smoke abatement society in England in the 1880s. And, you know, so people in Delhi should read Edward Carpenter. Because in the 1880s, he was talking about industrial pollution, air pollution, and what it does to your lungs. Which was pretty bad in London at that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and he was also, this is deviating slightly, but I think it's relevant in the 21st century, in the 21st century. Carpenter was a great early proponent of gay rights wow. and a profound influence on E.M. Foster. You know, of course, then homosexuality was banned and so on. But he was an authentic radical. He was a dissenting radical who was you know, quite different from the British establishment, whether Tory or liberal. Uh, you know, Gladstone, Disraeli, Morley, they all regarded him in contempt because... A Cambridge mathematics don who had left it, his privileged uh, fellow's quarters to live in the boondocks in Sheffield where he lived with his gay partner, a man actually, a working class man. So I think Gandhi's influences were very heterodox. They were Western, but from the Indian side, of course, there was Raichan Bhai, his giant teacher, and there was his mother's influence, the Pranami sect, which is syncretic, taking from Hinduism and Islam. So it was kind of a very curious mishmash. I mean, he was someone who was not well read in the conventional sense. He was not well educated in the conventional sense. He had read eclectically, broadly, haphazardly, but from his readings and his experiences, he synthesized a profoundly original 
moral and political philosophy. So I'd actually save my questions about Hind Swaraj for the end because that sure. is towards uh, the end of his time in South Africa. It's in 1910. Yeah. Uh, but I'll just ask him now since, you know, we've raised the subject. So he was in his 40s when he wrote this book. He was traveling from London back to South Africa. And it has some very interesting views. So I'm going to quote you a little bit sure. from the book at, uh, sure. at sure. end. These are Gandhi's words. Quote, railways, lawyers and doctors have impoverished the country so much that if we do not wake up in time, we shall be ruined. Stop quote. Uh, then elaborating on this, it may be a debatable matter whether railways spread famines, but it is beyond dispute that they propagate evil. Stop quote. Then quote, lawyers have enslaved India. Stop quote. Then about doctors, quote, doctors have almost unhinged us. Sometimes I think that quacks are better than qualified doctors. Stop quote. And Gandhi himself at one point believed that fast were a cure for cancer, for example. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, then, uh, quote, hospitals are institutions for propagating sin. And separately, to study European medicine is to deepen our slavery. And then in what your, uh, you know, in what uh, echoes with what uh, you mentioned of Carpenter's views and what Ruskin also would have agreed with, quote, it is machinery that has impoverished India. Stop quote. And all of this is very interesting to me because as you point out, like, you know, when he was in London, I, you know, one of my questions was whether in his writing he was winging it a lot because at one point he has this essay on the shepherd. About he idealizes uh, yeah, the shepherd uh, yeah. and he says the only bad thing about the shepherd is that Brahmins bathe twice a day, Vaishyas yeah, bathe once a day, shepherd bathes once a week. And as you point out much later in the book that not until then and perhaps not for the next 30 years had he actually met an Indian uh, shepherd. Yeah, yeah. And all of these ideas are so removed from reality. Yeah, like yeah. at the time of Inswaraj, he hadn't really spent much time yeah. in India. Yeah, so Inswaraj is a very curious uh, bishmash of a book. Now, let me say some positive things about Hinswaraj. I think Hinswaraj is as an anticipation of Gandhi's mature philosophy. It's crucial and important in two respects. He develops two vital ideas in Hinswaraj that he never goes back on. One is nonviolence. That nonviolence is always more morally pure and often a more politically efficacious way of bringing about social change than violence. Right? And that, that's elaborated for the first time. In Hinswaraj, because Hinswaraj partly is a reaction to the debates he had with Savarkar and others in London just before that. The second idea in Hinswaraj, which is uh, which is actually incredibly important, uh, is also something that stays with him right at the end, is the idea that Hindu-Muslim unity and cooperation is essential for Swaraj. That India does not belong to one religious faith alone. Now, so that's one aspect of Hinswaraj, where he clearly enunciates moral ideals on religious pluralism and on non-violence that he keeps till his last day. Then there are these views on lawyers and doctors and technology, which are written at a time, as you say, when he has, hasn't, doesn't know India, hasn't traveled through India. Later on, he modifies them quite substantially. I mean, not explicitly. For example, if you take his ideas on modern medicine, the stuff he says about modern medicine, when he comes back to India, that on two occasions, Gandhi is saved from death by allopathic doctors. Once in 1919, when he has piles, and once in 1924, where he has appendicitis. This, the first occasion, he is saved by an Indian doctor called Dalal, or the second occasion, by a British doctor called Maddox. So he says, hey, if you know modern medicine can save lives, my life included, it can't be all bad. You know, maybe for everyday cures, you know, a stomach problem or a cold or... Whatever else, you know, allergy, you can depend on herbal medicine, naturopathy. But when it comes to real substantial issues, modern medicine has a role to play. Likewise, with science, I mean, if you read his later writings on science, he says very clearly. I mean, for example, he has 
close encounters with Jagdish Bose. C.V. Raman is on his on his board of the All India Village Association. He says, I respect science, modern science, but it must be oriented towards the benefit of the poor. So it must, you know, have a social social function or must be socially valuable. Now, so the aspects of Hind Swaraj, uh, Hindu, Muslim, Muhammad, and non-violence that he stays with, the aspects that he modifies is extreme skepticism of doctors, modern science, technology. And there is a major silence in Hind Swaraj. Hind Swaraj has nothing at all to say about caste. Right. There is not a line about untouchability in that. Though he has previously in his previous writings which you've quoted condemned untouchability. Vaguely, vaguely. But he doesn't mm. see it as central. That comes much later. Mm. So Hind Swaraj is an interesting, curious book. And you know, the reason that it's been given such excessive importance is that Scholars like working with texts. You know, for Darwin, there is origin of the species. For Karl Marx, there is, uh, you know, capital. For Max Weber, there is protestant ethic and so on. But Gandhi's real mature philosophy emerges only through his writings in newspapers and his own journal and his speeches after he comes back to India. But having said that, on these two issues, Hindu-Muslim harmony and non-violence, which are absolutely central to Gandhi's view of the world, Hind Swaraj is the first systematic elucidation of those. So it's valuable for those reasons. And it strikes me that, you know, these two aspects that you mentioned are exactly the two aspects of which he has lived experience in the sense that before this for a couple of decades and his, all his time in South Africa, he's actually discovered passive resistance and non-violence and the power of non-violence through actually being in the middle, you know, through those two satyagrahas and actually being in the middle yeah. of all of that. Yeah. And equally, he's worked closely initially with Muslims and then later with uh, Tamils and uh, liberals right. and so on, people he wouldn't otherwise mix with. And uh, has already in various other writings preached uh, the whole un- unity and diversity kind of thing for tactical reasons. That if we are together, we, are, we have a better chance of kind of getting ahead. And so it strikes me is that where he is right in Hind Swaraj and uh, what is most powerful is stuff that he's gone through in his lived experience. Absolutely, absolutely. Very, very much so. I mean, in, uh, uh, you know, one of the Satyagrahas when the Hindus desert him, it's a Muslim called Kachalya who rescues, rescues the, you know, when no one is willing to fund it, it's a Parsi called Rustamji comes. So he has concrete experience of how movements are sustained by, you know, inter-community solidarity. And uh, just slipping back now to the uh, late uh, 1880s, he's finished his time in London. But one of the interesting things you mentioned about uh, in your book about um, his experiences there was that the English in London were much less prejudiced than the English in any of their colonial outposts. So they were much likelier to treat Gandhi as an equal or a near equal than he would find in South Africa or uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so, very much so. That's something, you know, I think uh, certainly there at the time. I mean, he... And South Africa is a very racist society. I mean, even by the standards of British colonial regimes, it's more racist than the others. Right. And uh, again, like we discussed, contingency comes into, he comes back from London, but he's not getting, you know, he can't set up a practice in Bombay. He's not successful even in uh, Rajkot. And you mentioned that his elder brother has had a falling out with the people at Porbandar. So whereas he could earlier have hoped of being the Diwan of Porbandar, those doors are now shut to him. And uh, then this offer comes to be the lawyer of uh, a Gujarati Muslim businessman in South Africa. And he kind of takes it down. Now, as he goes to South Africa, just lay out for me what is the landscape in South Africa in terms of what are the different kinds of Indians there? Uh, I mean, they're not a homogenous mass per se. Even that is sort of stratified. So uh, there are two kinds of Indians, uh, broadly speaking. They are the indentured laborers who are taken forcibly from the 1860s onwards to work the sugar plantations in Natal. 
they are largely but not exclusively from south india they are tamil and telugu speakers mostly but there are few uh, up bhaiyas and biharis as well uh, there's also a significant christian element in that in the tamil indented laborers now once you have lots of indians who are working class then a second wave of indians follows who are shopkeepers to service them and these are called passenger indians and they call passenger indians because they are not indentured labor who are taken forcibly but pay their fare or have their passenger fare on the ship and they set, set up small shops all across natal uh, so natal is the main part of south africa which is the indian population indentured laborers working on sugar and then coal plantations also in the railways later on and the shopkeepers then you have the discovery of gold in johannesburg and you know economic expansion in transvaal and some indians moved there and there are a few indians in the cape also which is right in the south there are virtually no indians in the orange free state which is the fourth major province of uh, what is then south africa uh, and when gandhi goes the he goes to settle a dispute between two cousins gujarati muslim cousins and he is needed because he has both been trained in the english law and can read the gujarati script and the case is being heard in the colonial courts but a lot of the documents are in gujarati so gandhi is more or less the only person who can play that role uh, they are no lawyers then i mean i i presume that uh, those indians who went to court would have been represented by white lawyers you know there were no black lawyers either at that stage and it's a relatively small community it's about 150000 people you know but it's you know uh, gandhi is in this unique place where he is not only their only lawyer he becomes more or less their sole spokesman though later on his leadership is challenged by people but at that stage he's the first person articulating their rights and it was interesting to me how a lot of these traders are sort of like uh gujaratis and gujarati muslims and some parsis as well and initially you mention how they are called arabs by the people there yeah, and they yeah. don't mind it because it differentiates them from the indentured laborers correct 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 so and there is a clear class hierarchy and for large parts of his life there gandhi is working mostly with uh, gujarati merchants right he, he has a few indentured clients but he is mostly working with the gujarati merchants it's only towards the end that he immerses himself more thoroughly in the lives of the working class indians Yeah, and also you describe a dilemma Gandhi faces when his family finally joins him. That well, he has to send one of his kids to school, and he can't send him to the European school because they won't admit him there. And the only other school is for the indentured laborers, and he doesn't want to send him there either. Though he eventually does because yeah, he considers yeah. himself absolutely, absolutely, sort of yeah, yeah, above them. Um, in the early part of his stay in South Africa, that thing happens where he travels on a train and he gets thrown out. Now, as you mentioned, this is one of those things that, in the narrative of Gandhi, is built up partly yeah, because yeah. you know Fisher wrote the biography of Gandhi, and Attenborough's film was based on that, and this is shown as something incredibly seminal and important. Uh, reading contemporary accounts, was it your sense that it was that? Well, there is no corroborative evidence. I mean, there's no reason to dispute that this right. happened to Gandhi, so he didn't have made it up. But was it so important? Is uh, like I don't know. I don't think it was that important. I mean, I argue based on the newspaper accounts that it's the attack on him. in Durban in January in 1897 where he's almost beaten to death i mean right. he goes this is his first trip back to india so he uh, reaches south africa in may 1893 spends three and a half years there his wife and two children are in uh, india in, in rajkot he goes to claim them he goes for three months and while he's away because he's already been active in organizing indians in Durban the whites are suspicious of him and while he's away in india the rumor grows that gandhi has gone to bring thousands of indians with him to invade and flood our precious beautiful jewel natal which is meant for whites only and those newspaper reports are vivid you know the craze that's building up and in the white papers you now the natal mercury the letters about gandhi and the demonizing of him and then when his 
ship comes the massive crowd that is there on port side to you know waiting to lynch him and he essentially escapes uh, more or less uh, by the skin of his you know teeth he's and saved by a lady with a parasol that's it he's saved by mrs alexander who, and this is all in the contemporary account i mean this the newspaper accounts all talk about this i think this is much more important in defining gandhi because it is not one firstly it's documented thoroughly and totally documented secondly it's an attack on gandhi by a white mob not by one railway inspector laying down the law that this carriage is white people only uh, so i think that's it's it's a very important episode in gandhi's life and it was really not given the importance it deserved uh, in earlier account and here again i think you know sort of contingency plays a part because thus far though of course he is very young but thus far gandhi has really shown no political inclinations per se and here once he's finished with his lawyering business so to say you know he starts ad- petitioning for uh, you know political causes because he's the only one to draft petitions and so on and he gets drawn into the politics still gradually because they all come to him he's the right. only one who's can understand the gujarati and can draft the petitions for them and you point out that how by 25 there is a stream of events and by 25 he is a leader of the natal indians right 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 yeah yeah which is uh, pretty uh, and would you say that it's just that you know things are going well so he's just kind of going with the flow when how yeah, does yeah. He... i think i think that happens you know you failed in uh, uh, your homeland you made it here your wife and children join you your 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 career progresses further you get more clients you take on more public causes uh, for the rights of indians of course you also struggle and sacrifice and you go to jail several times and i treat quite harshly but that makes you even more of a hero among your indians uh, among your community and he stays on and then but then that time comes when he feels he has to go back and and you talk at this point about two books that sort of uh, were a big influence on him one is a perfect way by anna kingsford and edward maitland and and the other is just tolstoy's work but not his novels like anna karenina and so on but uh, his later moralizing work where he's talking about how to live the virtuous life and yeah, so on. Yeah. and what part did that play in the development of his political philosophy because it's like a simultaneous thing happening here he's developing his own view of how he relates to the world and how a virtuous life should be lived and at the same time there is all his political activity so i think uh, there's a very interesting parallels between tolstoy and gandhi i don't know that gandhi saw it that way i don't know how much you knew of gandhi's biography but the uh, of tolstoy's biography but the historian can see the parallels first here was a man who was widely sexually uh, charged and you know basically his wife was uh, you know someone who was an object of his lust and his passions uh Then he gives it up. He has an epiphany and just gives it all up, right? And turns his back on sex. The second parallel is here is a man who was very successful in one profession, in Tolstoy's case, fiction writing, and gives it up for something else, which is moralizing. Gandhi's case, here was a man who was very successful as a lawyer, commercial lawyer, who gives it up to become a social activist. Now, I think one of Tolstoy's books that clearly influenced Gandhi a great deal. was a book called the kingdom of god is within you which essentially is kind of a you could I mean, of course there are parallels with hindu philosophy that you know god is within you you don't need a shrine uh uh to uh, make a public and visible display of your faith but i think that's a book that matters a great deal to him then also the other parallel between tolstoy and gandhi is that tolstoy is an aristocrat so he's not supposed to work with his hands it's the serfs who work with the hands gandhi is a banya a member of the twice born so he is also not supposed to work with his hands it's the shudras and the dalits who have to work with their hands but here are tolstoy and gandhi trying to you know kind of bridge this gap between 
those people who only think and those people who only work. And although they are by birth and status in the category of people who think and don't work, do manual labor, they insist on transgressing that divide and going the other side. So Tolstoy is a great exemplar. And, you know, it's just a sign of uh, how much Tolstoy meant to him that he sent this letter, you know, to Tolstoy from South Africa in 1909. And Tolstoy must have been flattered. I mean, anyone, you know, uh, would be flattered to get a fan mail from so far away from a country he hardly knew about. And he replies and then later, shortly after, Tolstoy dies, so the correspondence doesn't continue. But Tolstoy is, I think... Uh, if you're looking at a kind of an exemplary figure who influences Gandhi, I think the most important, more important than Gokhale, more important than his Jain guru, Raichandbhai, or at least at the same level. These would be the three, and I would rank Tolstoy number one. Raichandbhai, of course, died young, and that yeah. was a. As I say somewhere in the book, uh, I mean, mm. what's interesting about these three is that Raichandbhai is a Gujarati. Mm. Gokhale is an Indian, but not a Gujarati. And Tolstoy is a global figure. So, and he's moving from a local hero to a national hero to a global hero. So, you know, even it is the way he perceives it, you know, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a progression. And his need for validation from each of them is also striking. Like, you reproduce the letter that he wrote to Tolstoy. And it struck me that that is, like, and he's, at the end, he's asking Tolstoy to use the platform of his eminence to talk about what Gandhi called the greatest... Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it struck me that it's almost like analogous to someone asking a celebrity today for a retweet. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. But telling the celebrity this is the most important thing anyone has ever done. Yeah. Since you are interested in, uh, you know, civil disobedience, this is the most, this is, I have done this, uh, let this movement of civil disobedience transform the world and I need your certificate or your retweet or your validation. Uh, one thing about Tolstoy, I should add, this goes back to what we discussed earlier, I mean, that the unesthetic side of Gandhi. I mean, he there is no evidence he read Tolstoy's novels. I mean, <laughs> one would, you know, in, in most cases, where you discover a writer or you discover a musician and you like that person's work or songs, you look for other songs and writings by that person. Binge. Huh? You binge. You binge, you binge, you binge. Exactly. You binge, you binge. Right? And uh, Gandhi did, just was resolutely uninterested in anything that Tolstoy had written in the realm of fiction. I mean, he only wanted his moral philosophy. In fact, you mentioned when he was in uh, jail in the 1900s and you talk about the books he had with him. And I was going like, wait a minute, all of these he had read a decade ago, according to the account. So why is he reading them again? So it almost seems as if he has his limited palette of influences and he keeps referring to them and absolutely not kind of going beyond. Talking now about his politics, you know, the second big influence you mentioned from whom he craved validation as well was, of course, Gokhale. Yeah. Uh, You know, when he came back to India in 1896, uh, in fact, the first time he met Gokhale, they walked together in the the grounds of my alma mater, Ferguson College in Pune. Okay, yeah, where Gokhale used to teach. Where Gokhale used to teach and Ranade and Agarkar and that was known as an atheist place because, you know, uh, those guys were... Uh, quite a bunch of guys. And while he didn't pick up Gokhale's, you know, wider sort of liberal influences, he picked up the same kind of methods early on, which was a moderate methods where you see yourself not as someone fighting against the empire, but you see yourself as someone fighting to be accepted as a citizen of the empire and not a subject. You're quite content to be a part of the empire. There's no talk at this point that India should be anything separate. But you, you just want the rights that a citizen should have. And, uh, uh, you know, even in the methods, for example, at a much later point in time in the late 1900s, when he's talking about the moderates and the extremists, 
and he says that um, you know he doesn't uh, believe in uh, petitions because they are useless but at this point he does believe in petitions in the mid uh, 1890s where he's writing to uh, Navroji and Navroji also comes under the spell of Herbert and is petitioning the empire for a lot of stuff so at this point in time he's quite a moderate isn't he very much so very much so i think he is someone who believes uh, in the benign intentions of the british empire who takes at face value Queen Victoria's proclamation of 1858 that you know this is the empire being run for the benefit of its all its subjects regardless of community and caste and religion, and in that sense he's like Gokhale. I mean he's not like Tilak who says Swaraj. I mean he wants dominion status. Now Gokhale, it's an intriguing fact. I mean there is no clear uh, trade of evidence as to uh, other ways in which Gokhale influenced him. Gokhale was absolutely committed to Hindu-Muslim harmony, unlike Tilak who was a bit of with due respect, a bit of a Hindu militant, even at times a Hindu chauvinist, right? Now, Kokhale was also a precocious critic of the inequalities of the caste system. I mean, they, for, as early as 1903, he was writing about the rights of what we would now call Dalits, which he, get, of course, gets from his mentor day. And it's possible that he alerted Gandhi about this, so there is no clear chain of influence. Where Gandhi departs from Kokhale is that Gandhi is willing to go to jail rather than in pursuit of his political goals. Whereas Gokhale articulates his political goals through speech, through petition, through reasoned argument. And there's a wonderful moment uh, where Gandhi writes to Gokhale in about 1912 or so, where he says, please come and go to jail with us. I think this yeah. will ennoble, ennoble you further. You know, This is one thing you've not done. No. It'll make you more of a petit if you actually go to jail. And so that's it. Gokhale is someone whom debate, argument, petition, he's far more comfortable with that. Whereas Gandhi feels that, you know, he should also experience what uh, true Satyagraha is. Quick digression. We ah. probably shouldn't digress now, leave it for the next episode. But quick digression since we mentioned Gokhale. If Gokhale had not died young, I mean, he was just three years older than... I think, yeah, I, I think Gandhi... is the factual? Yeah, Gandhi's life would have been very different because he would have had that burden of the mentor over him, always checking on him, controlling him, chastising him. He may have broken free completely from Gokhale. It's possible. But I think Gokhale's uh, death certainly freed Gandhi. Right. Because and, Gokhale died a month after Gandhi comes back to India. Yeah, exactly. And I think Gokhale had kind of made him promise that for a year you won't do anything, you'll just go around and see the country and all that. We'll come to that in the next episode. Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll come back and talk more about Gandhi's journey in South Africa. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure that you do. We're IVM Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So we did this last week and we had a pretty good response and we'd like to keep it going. So if you are listening to an IVM Podcast, take a screenshot of that, put it on your Instagram story and tag us with it. And what we'll do is we'll repost it on our story so that people get a look at what you're listening to. And uh, people who come onto our stories will get an idea of what kind of things people are listening to. Leave us a comment too, just don't tag us. Last week, we launched two new shows. We launched our first Marathi podcast it's called Golgappa, hosted by a regular on our network, Tripti Kamkar. Actress Shivani Tangsale is the first guest of the show, and she talks about baking, her Everest climbing experience, and her love for theater. And we also launched the Filter Coffee podcast, hosted by Karthik Nagarajan. On the first episode, Karthik talks to film editor Nishant Radhakrishnan about focus group screenings, OTT platforms, and the future of the Indian film industry. On Cyrus Says, Cyrus is joined by writer Devang Patak. He talks about what drove him to start his own blog, What's That Funny?, and why critiquing the Indian comedy scene is important. On their 100th episode, the Football Twaddle guys answered questions from listeners while twaddling about David Dehaya's amazing performance. On the Kannada podcast, Thalle Harate, the hosts discuss how AI and machine learning is influencing our lives today and its potential for the future. 
On Advertising is Dead, Anshulika Dubey, co-founder of Wishberry, talks to Varun about running a crowdfunding platform for creative projects in India. And with that, let's continue on with your shows. Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. I'm talking with Ramchandra Guha about uh, Gandhi before he became Mahatma. Um, you know, we were talking about how he sort of saw himself as a, a citizen of the empire and didn't have anything against the empire to start with. And the most striking reflection of this is when uh, the British started their war against the Boers yeah. at the turn of the century. You know, the whole Natal Transvaal thing. And at that time, he described himself as an empire loyalist. And uh, he sort of volunteered his services to lead an ambulance corps in the British service. And how much of that was out of genuine loyalty and how much of that was sort of tactical as in that if we now show uh, the British our support, they'll be more open to it. I think both. Later. I think both. And of course, he supports the British in uh, the war against the Boers, which mm-hmm. is a war of one group of whites against another group of whites. And he also supports the British in the war against the Zulus in 1906, which is whites against Africans. It is partly tactical. I think it's partly a belief in British justice, but a partly a sense that the British brought us here. They gave us opportunities. We must stand by them. And if we support them, they will grant us freedom, more freedom and liberties and the kind of rights we're asking for. But it is also the case that he does not end, uh, take up arms. I mean, uh, it's essentially an ambulance corps. And in the case of the war against the Zulus, I quote evidence to show that they ministered to Zulus too. I mean, it was only not just to the Europeans. But... There was clearly instrumental strategic aspect to that support. And in the matter of the Zulu, since you mentioned it, I mean, the Bambatha rebellion, there's a quote from Gandhi. Um, uh, I think this was an Indian opinion. Quote, it is not for me to say whether the revolt of the Kafirs is justified or not. We are in Natal by virtue of British power. Our very existence depends upon it. It is therefore our duty to render whatever help we can. Stop quote. And this sort of brings me to the larger question, which often, you know, people raise to talk about his alleged racism and whatever. And there's no doubt that at the early years in South Africa, he certainly was that while he himself was petitioning for the Indians to be treated as citizens of the empire, he was quite happy for the black Africans to be treated as subjects of the empire. He would rather see himself as part of the ruling class. How did his ideas kind of evolve over time? On so, I think, so uh, to begin with, he was a racist. So let's say from 1894 till for about a decade, he came, he was absolutely shaped by the prejudices of his class and his own race. I mean, Indians are a very racist people, not only in how they treat people within India. I mean, marriage ads are, of course, the most famous or notorious example of that. But also the sense that Indians are heir to a great civilization, you know, a great Sanskrit civilization. They've fallen on bad days now, but they will recover their past glories. That Indians have built, you know, great glorious structures, famous ancient cities. They have elaborated the most profound and original philosophical theories. They were once leaders in science and mathematics and astronomy. So they are a great civilization in the same way as the West is a great civilization. Now, there's some interesting parallels here, though it's a bit of a digression, but uh, it's relevant. The interesting parallels here between how Hindus in late 19th and early 20th century saw themselves and how Muslims saw themselves. Because Muslims also thought they had to great civilizations. I mean, Baghdad is the flowering of everything, you know, for literature, philosophy, music, science. I mean, it's lamenting the loss of those great days. And the West has come. And the West has conquered us, partly through armed might, partly to artifice and cunning. But one day we will recover our glories and Baghdad will come back and, uh, you know, uh, the Gupta Empire will come back, you know. So there's a very interesting parallel in the ways in which 
Muslims and Hindus thought of themselves as, in theory, equal to the Europeans in the greatness of their civilizational achievement, but in practice politically subordinated, so not able to achieve or recover their true glory that should be their destiny. Now, in this context, the Africans are ranked both by the Muslims, and Muslims are the great pioneers of the slave trade too, you know, in Africa, and by the Hindus as the bottom. Africans are seen as someone who never had a civilization and what is unpardonable will never can never have a civilization. So Gandhi is captive to that form of thinking from the 1890s onwards. Now, by about 1906-1907, he started organizing Indians for collective action. At this stage, he is more skeptical of British uh, proclamations. He feels that the British have betrayed their promises. They're treating Indians harshly. He wants to protest against them. But his is still a movement of Indians alone. The Indian struggle is kept completely away from the question of rights for Africans. You can, so there is a period in which Gandhi is a racist, which runs from what, you know, the time he lands for about a decade or a little more. Then there's a period in which Gandhi starts viewing Africans a little more sympathetically. I mean, if you read the accounts in Indian opinion, He's talking about discrimination against them. I mean, how they're excluded from certain professions, how they're not allowed to enter the Pretoria town hall. So Indian opinion is not, he's not fighting for African rights, but he is noticing for the first time that Africans are discriminated against too by the colonial regime. There's this unjustly neglected speech he makes in Johannesburg in 1908, where he says, every race can achieve full uh, greatness. So, that the path to civilizational or national or cultural greatness is available to Africans. He's arguing that by 1908. Now, uh, Indian opinion is covering aspects of African discrimination against Africans. Move a little further on, 1910-11, he's interacting uh, with the first president of the African National Congress, Doob. There's another great leader of the African National Congress, Pixley Seme, who visits Gandhi in Tolstoy Farm. African newspapers are covering his non-violent resistance and saying we should also organize in the same way. But he still keeps his, uh, uh, how do I put it, his uh, his movement separate from that from the Africans. But there is a shift in his position, you know, uh, you know, as we were discussing before, that arguably there are four stages in Gandhi's attitude to race. There is the first stage where he's an unapologetic racist. There's a second stage where you could call him a recovering racist because he is nuancing and rethinking his views. There's a third stage where he's a kind of a lapsed racist because he no longer thinks in racial terms. And there's a fourth stage, which is from about the 19, late 1920s on, mid or late 1920s onwards, where he's a principled anti-racist. So you have to look at his career in the round. I mean, we'll talk about this in the, maybe in the second episode. But through the 20s and 30s and 40s, Gandhi is consistently talking about discrimination against Africans. He's telling Indians in South Africa that they are treated much worse than you. He's saying we must build a solidarity of all colored races. He is taking a greater and greater interest in the African-American situation in the United States. So, you know, he is growing out of his racism. And I think that while acknowledging absolutely that he was a racist, like many other Hindus were at that stage, and many other, you know, Arab Muslims were too at that stage. You know, the, the Hindus of South Asia and the Muslims of Central and West Asia in the late 19th and early 20th century had a similar framework by which to analyze civilizations, that Arabs and Indians are fully equal to Christian civilization. Uh, but Africans are somehow, you know, not 
can never join that exclusive club. So Gandhi has that worldview, but he outgrows it slowly. You can say he's too slow in outgrowing it, but certainly for the last two and a half decades of his career, he's comprehensively outgrown it. And he's a principal anti-racist. So I think that whole arc has to be seen. You know, it's, it's, it's someone like Gandhi who writes so much and who lives such a long life. It's very easy to quote him out of context. But as he himself says, Take what I said last. Also, likewise, with regard to science and medicine, you know, he's knocking doctors in allopathic medicine in Hinswaraj in 1910. But in the 1920s, he's praising uh, how surgery can save lives. So I think that's that's the way you must look at his evolution. I mean, people contain multitudes. And this also sort of brings us back to the question of hindsight and history, where looking back, it's very easy to judge people for being racist or say that, hey, Jefferson had slaves. Absolutely. Yeah. Gandhi was racist or... And uh, or Gandhi was misogynist. Uh, you know, in that sense, I don't know if he was ever not a misogynist because especially parts of uh, how he treated Kasturba during his years in South Africa, where, you know, she was a means to an end for him yeah. always. Initially, it was a means to satisfy his lust, yeah. uh, most famously when his father was, uh, you know, right. dying yeah. and so on. And and when he takes a 180 degrees turn away from that... Um, She's satisfying other aspects of him. You know, she'll do his housework. When he's, you know, tired of her in um, uh, Johannesburg, he sends her to the farm in Phoenix, the Stolzoy and farm that he'd set up that you described to do work there. It seems that he never really relates to her as a human being. It's like he's got this vision in his head and everybody has a certain slot and they fit into that. Even the way he treats his kids, for example, Absolutely, is yeah, simply yeah. horrendous. But that is by modern standards. How do we look back and uh, think of these figures? So I think... He was a typical Hindu patriarch. Okay. I think uh, <clears throat> most Hindu men believe that they can absolutely determine the life choices of their wives and indeed their children. And it extends well beyond Gandhi. It's probably true of most, maybe many, if not most Indian Hindu families today. I mean, my own grandfather, uh, who's educated in Germany and so on, stopped speaking to me because I didn't do science. Because he felt that boys do science and boys don't do humanities. So, you know, this kind of uh, absolutely censorious, harsh attitude. No one would be trolling you today on Twitter if you'd done science. I know that. He was right. Very few people. That's, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's true. I know, I know that. That's true. That's true. But he writes very frankly about his ill treatment of Kasturba. Not about his children. I think about yeah. his children, you know, he, he was cruel to Harilal. There is no Harilal suffered greatly and was broken by... His father's lack of understanding and lack of empathy. But about his irretrievable Kasturba, he does speak quite fluent, cry quite frankly himself. Like there's one point where you talk about how Harilal wants to go to London to study to be a barrister, just as his father did. Yeah. And his father says that, look, you don't need to go there because you, and he names people like Shivaji and Rana Pratap and the Anand Saraswati yeah. and says that they didn't need to an English education. Completely and, gratuitous, that kind and, of rebuttal. And, totally and, gratuitous. And Harilal yeah. very smartly comes back at him and yeah. perhaps should have gone and studied and been a barrister, comes yeah. back at his father and says that, but what about Gokhale, Ranade and so exactly. on? These guys yeah. did go and they yeah. are Gandhi's heroes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of pretty poignant. And and now you know, so you talk about the Boer War is over and all that. And in the very early years of the century, Gandhi comes back to India, and uh, he again contingency strikes. He can't make a career in Bombay because all his contemporary lawyers, starting out at the same time as him, have t- sort of ten years experience and so that. And no, no one really knows him in Bombay, so he can't make any, any anything happen in Bombay and Rajkot. And eventually, he goes back to South Africa. How has South Africa changed in the meantime? Well, uh, of, of course, the British had won. 
a union was being forged in which all the four provinces would come and uh, join together. Uh, he is now based in Johannesburg. Uh, and uh, that's where he is uh, because the Indians there need him more than the, than the Indians in Natal. And uh, his family is with him now. The, all the children, four children are there. Uh, and this is when he uh, makes a home with uh, you know, the Polacks who are uh, a Jewish couple, which is a very <coughs> interesting aspect of his personal life there. There's the interracial household in Johannesburg. And and also uh, Kallenbach, uh, and and Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, you, t- you talked a little earlier uh, in our conversation about his religious ecumenism. And we talked about the Indian Muslims and Parsis who he works closely with. But he also, of course, befriends European Jews and European Christians. I mean, there's the Doak family. And Gandhi has four sons. He doesn't have a daughter. And it's this Christian peace daughter who becomes a kind of... Uh, Olive Doak who becomes a kind of adopted daughter to him. And one of the joys uh, of my research in South Africa was discovering the correspondence between Gandhi and his adopted daughter, which is in an archive in in Pretoria. And that kind of relationship humanizes him. Having said that, I mean, to return to uh, earlier discussion, I say very late in the book that Gandhi does not have a single African friend. Although his views on race evolve, and he slowly sheds the crude racism of his youth, he has a few African acquaintances, but he cannot yet have an African friend, which is, I think is something worth noticing. And his friendship with Kallenbach is also very interesting and similar in a sense it struck me to his earlier friendship with Metab, who's also similarly, uh, Sheikh Metab, who's also similarly yeah, yeah, athletic yeah. and so on. And uh, what did you think of the aspect of their friendship which Joseph Lelywell writes about in his book, Great Soul? Well, it's, it's not serious. I, I have a long footnote on it. It's, 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 so it's wild speculation that they could have been a gay relationship. Well, it's a simple misunderstanding or misrepresentation. Right. Gandhi is in London. Mm. He's missing his friend Kallenbach. Mm. Kallenbach is also a Tolstoyan. So like Gandhi and Tolstoy, he's a successful professional, an architect who gives up his wealth and prosperity to live simply. And Gandhi is in London negotiating on behalf of the Indians. Mm. And Gandhi and Kallenbach used to walk the streets of Johannesburg. And when there were corns or blisters under their feet, they would use Vaseline. So he's in London. He writes to uh, Kallenbach saying, I have a bottle of Vaseline on my mantelpiece to remind me of our time in uh, Johannesburg together. And Lelywell just falls for that. And, you know, in fact, it says, the later the letter he says, there's a reference to corns. And the Vaseline is about corns. It's not about some something else, which is what <laughs> Lelywell interprets it to be. Now, so it was just a wild speculation. And fortunately, I think it's come, gone away and right. died. And Sensibly I, died, yeah. And this is when, uh, you know, his most, uh, you know, his... A significant battle against the empire sort of starts when the uh, the Transvaal people want to bring the Asiatic Ordinance, which has a number of sort of draconian measures, such as everybody has to register themselves with all ten fingers and uh, so on. And while fighting against this, he realizes the limitations of petitioning, and uh, and this is sort of where passive resistance is born, where uh, you know, and there's sort of you describe that conceptual journey from Dharna to Hartal to passive resistance, which, you know, eventually they kind of crowdsource the naming of it and it gets called Satyagraha. Tell me a little bit about how that journey would have been like for him. Well, there's a classic essay by a great scholar of Gujarat called Howard uh, Spodek, which talks about indigenous forms of protest in the princely states of Kathiawar. And he says that, uh, I mean, he uses Gujarati term, and he says there's one form of protest where, uh, supposing your crops failed, you wrote a petition to the king saying, this year, like this 
loan mafi kind of thing, right? Yeah. Loan waiver. Don't tax us this year because our crops have failed. And if the king doesn't agree, you go on dharna or you go to a collective petition. You go, thousands of peasants would go in Kathiawar to the palace and just sit there till the king granted remission from taxing the crops that year. And Howard Spodek says this was a kind of a non-violent civil disobedience that was indigenously, traditionally practiced by the peasants of Kathiawar and Gandhi belonging to a family of Diwans in Prisli Kathiawar must have known about this. Gandhi, of course, doesn't refer to it himself. He says, my mother would fast, you know, against the father, you know, to shame him. Right. But it's it's very similar. So I think it is there in the kind of a political vocabulary of pre-modern India. Fasting, collective protest, non-violent protests, uh, is there. I mean, Howard Spodek in the article talks about two forms of protest. He says one is called Risaman, which is this, which is petitioning the king. And the other is Baharavatiya, which is going outside the law and becoming a bandit and taking to arms, you know, like Robin Hood or like Sultana Daku or whatever against the state. And so I think this was part of Gandhi's uh, mental furniture. He knew that these are ways in which you can shame the ruler. So if they don't respond to petitions and appeals and meetings, start a dharna. And then a satyagraha, uh, then of course some of it is his own innovation. For example, the burning of the certificates is something he starts, right? So and then courting arrest, courting it again and again and again. So some of it is pure innovation on his part. Some of it is probably derived from what he learned as a boy in Kathiawar. And, and, and it strikes me that in, in the, through passive resistance, he somehow he's bridging the gap between the moderates and the extremists in the sense he's going beyond petitioning. But unlike the extremists, he's not resorting to violence or he's not very much, resorting very much, to coercion. Very much. That's a very good point, Amit. I would completely agree. I think and that is characteristic of uh, uh, his approach to many things. That, uh, you know, if you look at uh, his attitude to caste system, you know, he's also negotiating a way between the Hindu orthodoxy and the Dalit radicals. You know, so he's like uh, finding al- alternatives to two extreme positions. Hindu-Muslim harmony, you know. The atheist who says all religion is bad and the religious supremacist who says only my religion is the true faith. Whereas he kind talks about pluralism as a mediating path. So you're absolutely right. I mean that uh, moderates only write petitions or debate in parliament. Extremists only use violence. And he was finding a way of uh, pressurizing the government through collective action and uh, soul force but without using violence. And Satyagraha was uh, the technique that answered to this. Yeah, in fact, James Kean Hardy had once said that the moderates are extreme in moderation and the extremists are moderate in the extremism. So it's probably yeah. there wasn't that much difference to begin with. And Gandhi, interestingly, was acclaimed by both. Uh, he was acclaimed by Gokhale, partly because they had that relationship going on. He was also acclaimed by Sri Aurobindo, for example. Right, right. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's it. In his... Uh, in his writings in 1908 and so on, etc. Aurobindo talks about the Transvaal. Yeah, yeah. And, and they both independently talked about passive resistance, but not read each other. And uh, I think Aurobindo oh. read Polak, I think, writing about Gandhi and then discovered. You know, it's a kind of, I think people, I mean, there's also a uh, long account in my book about all the writings about uh, in the Telugu and Tamil press about yeah. it, you know. Right. So it's like similar to today, we, uh, it's, you know, 150 years later, or 120 years later, we talk, you know, uh, Indian newspapers will be puffed up with pride when some Indian becomes CEO of uh, Microsoft or whatever, right? Now, because a barrier that's not supposed to be breached. This is a different kind of pride. I mean, this is someone where this is pride in someone fighting for the elementary rights of Indians in South Africa. I mean, that letter that 
Ratan Tata writes to, which I quote. Right. You know, it's a very moving letter. He says, you are fighting for all Indians, all over the world, to be recognized as equal. Right. And you also point out how, uh, where, uh, what passive resistance did for Gandhi was that it raised his stature within the community. Earlier, he was like a lawyer fighting against a bureaucrat, Monfort Chamney. And now he's a leader of the entire Indian community uh, right, in right. Transvaal fighting against General Jansmoot. So uh, absolutely, 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 absolutely. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it gives him that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing there uh, happens is that he carries out the Satyagraha and he goes to jail and all of that. And then finally, a compromise is reached. And what struck me about the compromise was that although uh, the government sort of steps back on some of the things, they don't actually uh, repeal the act. They, they they just say we will discuss repealing the act and Gandhi takes it at face value. And it's kind of accepted. The agitation is called off and then Gandhi, you know, does this whole voluntary registration thing. Like just, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have come to it so suddenly. Uh, it'll confuse my listeners what we're talking about. The, basically, the Asiatic ordinance insisted that all uh, everybody who's come there from India has to register using all eight fingers and the two thumbs. And all the Indians objected to this because they felt it was demeaning, especially those among them who were literate. And Gandhi at one point poetically said that it's not about the thumbprints, it's about the compulsion of it yeah. uh, that is uh, demeaning. And uh, they, they they refused to register. And w- when the date came, the British essentially found that no one was registering and the officers who were supposed to take those uh, thumbprints were jokingly described as Gandhi as being on a paid vacation. And... Um, uh, and then eventually a compromise was reached where Gandhi said that he would, you know, ask the Indians to voluntarily register, provided the government stepped down on a number of the um, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they didn't repeal the act. They just said that we will discuss repealing the act. And then Gandhi steps down. And then the next day when he goes to voluntarily register, he's attacked by Beaten a up, bunch yeah. of Pathans who yeah. believe that he's betrayed them. Yeah, yeah. And, and, in, 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 and given that Smoots actually didn't repeal the act, and ah. never seemed to intend to have repealed the act. Would you say, in some senses, Gandhi was a bit naive here? Yeah, I think I think he always trusted. Uh, you know, this is a aspect of his politics for a very long time until Quit India in 1942. You know, I mean, whenever he launches a movement and it's called off, and there's a compromise, and the British promise to do things. For example, the Salt Act was actually never repealed by Irving, even though that was promised. So there is, he certainly has this. Uh, you know, whether it's. Uh, uh, naive or it's a matter of principle that you know if my opponent gives his word I will trust him and what I sort of noticed about all his satyagrahas was that acclaimed as they are all his satyagrahas basically failed in their proximate objective like yeah, yeah. Uh, you know and and nevertheless what they did do is they succeeded in making these issues mass issues and animating millions of people which no other leader had managed to do correct correct what's the magic there no, I think it, uh, I mean, first of all, a small correction. I mean, the last Satyagraha in South Africa did eliminate the... Half its, yeah. Yeah, it did eliminate the indentured tax and the marriage customs were, you know, regularized and so on. Uh, but of course, he, he did never achieved uh, substantially the goals that the Satyagraha had uh, set for itself. I think it's a sense, the two, three things that Gandhi does in the Satyagrahas in South Africa, that uh, his, uh, in retrospect, we prefigure what he was able to do in India. The first is to unite people, Indians of different religious, linguistic and caste backgrounds. Uh, so that, you know, previously Gujaratis would not be on the street with Tamils and Hindus would not protest together with Muslims and so on. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is cultivate an ethic of sacrifice. 
that middle class people, often middle class people and working class people are willing to risk their livelihoods in a pursuit of a larger cause, which is dignity and self-respect, national dignity and self-respect. So I think that's, this is what uh, it does. It it creates a sense of uh, trans-religious and trans-community solidarity. And it uh, creates an ethic of self-respect and self-reliance. Even if the, as you say, the proximate objective is not achieved. And it's around the time of the passive resistances and maybe the Satyagrahas, like you said, actually played the main part in this, is that in the probably more than the first half of his time in South Africa, he was seen as a representative of the trading class. Correct, correct. The Gujarati Muslim traders, the Parsis, the elite, so to say. But what happened post the Satyagrahas and he picked up associates like Tambi Naidu across the way is that the Tamilian indentured laborers especially adopted him as their leader. And then he became a leader of this... Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, for a long period, he was the leader really of uh, the Gujarati middle class. And it's only in the last two or three years of his uh, journey in South Africa. And essentially, only through the 1913-14. So, Tambi Naidu had joined him before, but it's through that major strike of 1913-14, where he becomes uh, a true, true master. Yeah, and at that point, you talk about how, you know, Gokhale sent C.F. Andrews uh, yeah, to yeah. Gandhi to tell him to come back to India. It's time to come back to India. And... Uh, Again, his last Satyagraha, like Gandhi's own comments on it were that, you know, the Indians hadn't yet got the right to trade, travel or own land anywhere. So in that sense, they didn't get everything that they asked for. And yet he grandiosely described it as a quote-unquote Magna Carta for Indians, uh, which he had the term he had also used for Queen Victoria's, uh, you know, earlier proclamation and a final settlement and a charter for our freedom. He was very good at optics also. (laughs) That's true. That's certainly true. I mean, these are rather tall claims that were not bellied by later events. Yeah. But I think the last thing I'd say is that, you know, uh, again, this is, you know, again, uh, as I said, you know, that uh, although Gandhi, I said Gandhi did not have African friends. Gandhi was racist to begin with, outgrew it, but even when he outgrew it, he did not have African friends. But the African press was watching what he was doing. And they were learning from his attempts to they were watching very closely his attempts to build bridges between different sections of the Indian community. And they were likewise inspired to build bridges between different sections of the African community. I mean, uh, the African National Congress is modeled on the Natal Indian Congress and also, of course, the Indian National Congress. So I think that's an aspect of what, I mean, if you look at uh, the positive aspects of his contribution, it's not just eliminating caste or religious or linguistic prejudice within India, Indians. It's also showing all people in South Africa that collective, if you build bridges across tribal boundaries, you know, you can be more effective. I mean, the African National Congress is trying to build bridges across tribal boundaries and the very name shows that they are influenced by what Gandhi has been trying to do. So, they're much larger. They're the original inhabitants of the land. Uh, Essentially, they have a much greater stake in the ending of uh, the racial regime. But they are observing those who polemically describe, uh, dismiss Gandhi as an unrepentant racist should also acknowledge the influence on African struggles of what he did. I mean, this carries on much later. Gandhi leaves South Africa, but uh, his influence persists. I mean, uh, through the 40s and 50s, the first major struggles against apartheid, you know, for example, the defiance campaign of 1952 absolutely uses Gandhian methods of civil disobedience. You know, uh, uh, Chief Albert Luthuli, who is the ANC leader for much of the 40s and 50s, is greatly inspired by Gandhi, not just in nonviolence, 
but in building cross-tribal solidarity so that, you know, uh, that the South African liberation struggle is not only of Zulus or not only of the Hosa or not only of the Cape Colored or not only of the people of the Transki, but everyone. So I think that is part of Gandhi's legacy to South Africa, which, you know, uh, polemical ideologues who uh, point to his early racist regimes and totally dismiss that he is someone who finds a way of building bridges between different sections of uh, a society and organizing collective action for uh, political emancipation. Now, the ANC follows Gandhian methods, both in terms of nonviolence and in terms of building bridges between different sects and religions and tribes from 1912 right up till the 1960s for 50 years when they decide quite legitimately that against a harsh and brutal apartheid regime, non-violence won't get you anywhere. So you must have a targeted violence. But I'd urge again this question of because this this whole issue has come back again about Gandhi and race, that uh, it is true that Gandhi was a racist when he was young. I mean, of course, but this larger aspect of his legacy in Africa itself, you know, that why did the African National Congress observe Gandhi, what Gandhi was doing so closely? Because they could take it forward in their own uh, politics. And to sort of go back to the great man theory of history, this begs the counterfactual question that what if the gentleman who hired Gandhi as a lawyer to represent him in uh, South Africa in uh, the early 1890s picked some other lawyer who was less ambitious and didn't do any of this? And how, you know, how different history would have been. Absolutely, absolutely. Very very much so, yeah. So, I've I've taken a lot of your time. I sort of want to um, end with asking you to elaborate on kind of six things, which are what you uh, said with reference to Gandhi in 1906, are the six different aspects of Gandhi in which he was uh, developing during that period of time. Uh, One really doesn't need much elaboration, which is as a lawyer, where... As you point out, it became sort of just a way of him to earn his bread. And, you know, we don't need to talk about him as a lawyer much. Uh, The second is as a political campaigner. And uh, would you say that the roots of everything that happened subsequently, India's independence uh, struggle and so on, really happened in that second spell in South Africa when he discovered passive resistance in Johannesburg? As a political campaigner, yes. Not as a social reformer, which is a separate question we can take up later, maybe in, in, in the second episode. But yes, I mean, the idea that your first approach must be a reasoned argument and petition, appeal to the better angels of of the ruler's nature, of the ruler's nature, you know, that if that fails, then you conduct a satagraha. But then you be prepared to call it off uh, and negotiate and deliberate. Uh, you, of course, must be willing to go to jail under the harshest conditions. So, sure, I mean, that is something that uh, is first tried in South Africa. For example, that long march is a clear anticipation of the salt march. So, few right. people recognize this. I mean, it is a, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, many of the tactics and uh, approaches to political action are developed in South Africa. Right. The third aspect as a propagandist. He started the magazine Indian yeah, Opinion, yeah, yeah. wrote frequently, sometimes under his byline, sometimes not. Um... What do you think Gandhi learned about propaganda during these years, for example? No, I think that you have your own vehicle. I mean, you must have your own newspaper. I mean, he, of course, Tilak had Kesari, so he may have been inspired by that. And what is striking about Indian opinion is that it's originally printed in four languages, four scripts. I mean, there's Hindi, there's Tamil, there's Gujarati, and there's English. After some time, money runs, runs out, so it's only English and Gujarati. Later on, money comes back, so Tamil is restored. Uh, so you have, of course, your own vehicle for propagating your views. But printed in as many languages as possible so that you reach, you know, as wide a spectrum of uh, your likely audience as possible. Uh, you also have, I mean, he was a great editor and journalist. You have reports, you have analysis, you have forthcoming events and you have uh, opinions. 
the fourth aspect was as someone who unites different parts of society which is something that wasn't rhetorical which he actually lived out because he had friends who were muslims yeah. and friends who were you know by the end of it of the tamil uh, indentured exactly. laborers as well was he like that when he got to south africa or was it a journey that he realized that tactically he has to no, bring no, people he had together he already become like that i mean i mean if you look at his uh, experiences in england i mean of course you're dealing with english people uh, uh but i think he was already on the way to becoming that and uh, he'd already incurred the wrath of his bomod banias so he'd be willing to you know break caste taboos but south africa takes it much further it takes it much further and also the diaspora you know uh these distinctions matter less and less i mean you're all in the same boat your indians trust together by force of circumstance and facing the same irksome restrictions on your trade and your livelihood and your movements and you don't really think that much about who's a parsi who's a gujarati who's a tamil who's a telugu and could it be the case that that circumstantially enforced sense of unity also then impacts the way he looks at the world when he comes back to india where the divisions are actually harsher very much very much very much i think he learns about the diversity of india and they need to build bridges across these different in groups africa. in south africa in south africa uh, the fifth aspect uh, as a family man and and we I, I, let, let 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 me let me uh, stay a while with the fourth you know uh, we talked about the second aspect which is the theory of non violence i think the fourth aspect is more important than the second so conventional wisdom tells you that south africa is important to gandhi as a laboratory for satyagraha which he then applied on a larger scale in india i believe the fourth aspect is more important south africa is more crucial to gandhi because it's in south africa that he understands that india does not belong to one religion or one language alone i mean if gandhi had not lived or not gone to south africa india would full still have found its way to political freedom without satyagraha either through the gokhale method or through the aurobindo ghosh bhagat singh method it would have found independence but it would it was because of south africa and what gandhi learned about the vital importance of religious and linguistic pluralism that india at independence was constituted on a model or a template very different from that of european nations which privilege a single language and a single religion i mean pakistan is a european nation in that sense israel is a european nation but india is not because of what gandhi learned in south africa so i think the fourth aspect is in some ways the most crucial point that it's the religious and linguistic pluralism that he cultivates furthers understands appreciates in south africa that informs the later creation of the indian nation state on a model or a template very different from nationalism that, that's a profound point uh, the, the fifth of course family we've kind of touched on uh, <coughs> earlier in this episode um, anything to sort of add to that do his views ever modify themselves like we talk about gandhi's journey as a racist where he started off a racist and then was a principled anti uh, racist by the end of it uh but was he always a misogynist did he kind of get well i think we we'll, we we'll come to that in the second episode certainly right. he softens in his attitude towards his third and fourth child i think with kasturba he reaches some kind of accommodations he recognized the importance of his his uh, beliefs and his uh, commitments and you know partakes of them but i think he softens later on and ramdas and devdas treated much more kindly than harilal and banera but we'll come to that in the second yeah and and the final aspect is the self discovery aspect where he's kind of been on the journey of self discovery all the while you know it was henry salt in london then uh, tolstoy and ruskin and thoreau uh, all through this uh, period but it seems clear that at the time that he's landed to india he's come back to india mohandas gandhi is not yet mahatma or would you say that he is in a sense that all those qualities are already there no i think uh, i mean india is a much larger canvas so he has to understand that uh, 
uh, you know, get to grips with it. He has to uh, get involved in the Congress Party, learn to operate within it, find a way of of assuming leadership roles within it uh, uh, before he can really claim the kind of, uh, uh, you know, leadership role that he wants. So in South Africa, essentially, he is a community leader. I mean, he is not more than that. Right. And we'll we'll take the journey forward in the next episode. Thanks so much, Ram. Thanks, Amit. Great pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to this show, head on over to Amazon or your nearest neighborhood bookstore, perhaps even Bookworm on Church Street in Bangalore, which is Ram's favorite bookstore, and pick up the two books by Ram Goha, Gandhi Before India and Gandhi, The Years That Changed the World. You can follow him on Twitter at Ram underscore Goha. You can follow me on Twitter at Amit Verma, A-M-I-T-V-A-R-M-A. You can browse past episodes of The Seen and the Unseen at seenunseen.in and thinkpragati.com. Thank you for listening. India's a massive subcontinent home to truly stunning diversity. Behind the veils of smoke that obscure our thriving cities, our history is still alive, glimmering like sequins, waiting to be discovered. And if you, like me, are straining to hear the echoes of our past, this podcast is for you. I'm Anirudh Kanisetti, a history and geopolitics researcher, and I host Echoes of India, a history podcast about India, by Indians, and for Indians. In Echoes, we journey through the complex histories of South Asia and what they can teach us about our globalized world. Tune in every Wednesday on ivmpodcast.com or your favorite podcast app. Hello, everybody. We have a brand new daily podcast we're working on with Bloomberg Quint. All You Need to Know provides the top news on business, markets, and the economy so that you can stay ahead of the curve. Tune in every morning on BloombergQuint.com, the IVM podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts from.